Hey, thanks for downloading this episode of Cross Defense. Today, Pastor Schulteis is going to teach us four ways to sharpen our imaginations. And then we're going to look at the historical method and ask the question, is the New Testament trustworthy? Stick around for the answer. It's Monday, which means it's time for Cross Defense. You've been waiting all week, and here we go all all week. It's only Monday, so you've been waiting, what, a day and a half? Well, no, you've been waiting all week since the last time I talked to you, so you've been waiting for eight days. Oh, eight days is a good number for the Christian. It is a wonderful number for the uh, the eternal day, the eighth day. It's going to be a great show today. We have our regular Imagineer with us already for this first segment. We're going to put the uh, Exciting the Imagination segment first in the lineup today. I want to make sure we get Sam lined up here to teach us about the Imagination but this is the show. This is the show where we equip the mind, excite the imagination, and comfort the soul all with God's Word. And we do that for a reason, as I say every week, because we have a fierce foe. We have a fierce enemy, and our only defense is Christ on the cross. And so we want to fortify those things which the Lord has given us, our minds, our imaginations, and we want to tend to the soul so that we know the gospel. So we never forget in this crazy world we live in, in 2021, that our Lord still loves us. He is with us and he has established all kinds of ways to, to make sure we know that in all the different aspects of who we are. Um, whether we're using our bodily members in our vocations of manual labor or whether we're we're training our minds to, to uh, dwell and study on his word, whether we're, we're using our imaginations to contemplate his word and to uh, help shape the way we think and even the way we feel and the way we address the world. So if this sounds like something you're into, well, you're in the right place. Continue to listen for the next hour as we talk scripture, as we talk about things that will equip the mind, excite the imagination, and comfort the soul. I am your host, the Reverend Tyrell Bramwell. I'm an admission counselor at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and it is a pleasure to broadcast to you right now via KFUO.org or your favorite podcast app. All of you who have taken the time to subscribe to this podcast, thank you so much for your support. I hope that you're finding this content to be of value to you. Later on in the show, we're going to talk about the historical method. We're going to talk about what we're really, we're going to answer the question, is the New Testament trustworthy? When you read the words of Jesus, when you read the evangelists, when you read Paul and Peter, John, can you trust what you're reading? Can you trust that what we have today in 2021 is accurate to what they wrote in the first century. We're going to take a look at that, not theologically, but historically, because that's a question that we have to get to via the historical method. And while we're doing that, we're going to go back to our good friend, John Ward Montgomery, who we heard about, heard from last week. But also in the, in the course of the conversation, we get to read from one of my favorite quotes, one of my favorite citations from a non-Christian, Josephus, as he, a historian in the first century, a Jewish historian, records information about Jesus that lines up perfectly with what the New Testament says about Jesus. Fascinating stuff. How the, the enemies of the Lord, if you say, you know, if, if you will, the foes, those who are not Christian, can speak accurately about the Christ that has a very powerful, powerful meaning. It means something very important to us as we try to answer the question of whether or not the New Testament and the Bible in general, whether or not it is to be trusted, whether it is a valid document that can inform who we are and what we believe. Okay, enough of me. Let me introduce again, you know his voice, you know this man, Reverend Sam Schulteis. How are you today? Hey, good to be with you again, Ty. Doing pretty well. Great to have you. Always look forward to the, this time when we're recording these episodes. It's a lot of fun. I agree. So tell us, what do you, what do you want to teach us today about the imagination? 
Yeah, great question. So I was thinking uh, we've been talking, we've been visiting a lot of different things with uh, talking about the imagination in the scripture. Right? We, you know, we spent some time looking at definitions. We spent some time uh, looking at the, the gift that the imagination is from God. Right? It's a, one of those God-given gifts, just like our our intellect and our reason. We also have our imagination, and you know, we use that as uh, as a God-given gift uh, to serve Him in many ways, to enjoy His creation in many ways. Uh, to teach and enjoy his word, uh, especially uh, in many ways, too. And I thought, you know, we, we toured a little bit through some of the prophets and their use of the imagination in speaking to us and the Psalms and you know, a lot of different Old Testament kinds of things. And I thought maybe it'd be a good to, good moment to take a step back or two before we look at some more imagination, uh, uses of the imagination in the New Testament, and uh, just ask ourselves a few questions, kind of like, uh, well, you know, if, if, if you don't read, uh, you know, nerdy stuff uh, as excessively or perhaps uh, uh, as frequently as maybe uh, you or I do, uh, or other listeners I'm sure do too, uh, but maybe maybe you're not, uh, you know, maybe you're not reading Lord of the Rings once a year or something like that. Uh, <laughs> uh, so maybe you're asking yourself, well, this, this sounds wonderful. I love I love the I love the discussion and the conversation around God's gift of the imagination, but but what does that mean, right? We ask ourselves kind of that classic Lutheran catechism question, and what does that mean for me then as a you know as a Christian, as I'm reading the scriptures, or as I'm sitting in church, or as I'm having family devotions? How do I how am I supposed to go about using my imagination if maybe I haven't thought about it in as you know concrete or maybe as uh, you know as f on the forefront of your head as maybe others have um, so I thought all right that's a good question to think about for myself too just in terms of what how, how do you do that and I'm sure there's a, a lot more that we can say about this probably a, a longer exhaustive list but I I kind of came up with like three or four I don't know questions thoughts that uh, that are swirling around in our head uh, that or that you know I think are helpful to have swirl around in our head as we're reading scripture and there's a lot of questions that are good to ask right um, as Lutherans we always ask that what does this mean question yeah. um, and I think you know when we talk about that word meaning and this is maybe a good intro into it right that when we talk about what it means we're not only looking at it in a okay, linguistic way, maybe, uh, you know, pastors certainly do this as they prepare the text for the sermon, um, and hearers do this as you're listening to the sermon and the scriptures being read on Sunday morning or maybe during the week. You know, what does this mean? What is this word of God saying to me? And when we're doing that activity, and, and we all do this regularly, whether it's home or church or, you know, you know all the different ways that we're hearing God's word, cross-defense radio, right? Um, you're, you're using your imagination on one hand, uh, and you're also, or maybe we should say on one side of your brain, right? And the other side, uh, you're also using your reason, right? You're, you're using both of these things, right? So you're you're parsing verbs, even though you may not understand all those things. You're, you're listening to the tense and you're listening to what it's being said and uh, who is saying it and what they're doing. But all of those things, again, our reason and our imagination kind of go together there, right? And I think sometimes we tend to gravitate towards the, all right, this is the, the cognitive this is the answer kind of thing, right? This is the question. Here's the answer. But we also know that meaning comes to us uh, and is interpreted by us through God's gift of the imagination, too. So I thought, again, a few questions that help me as I think about the imagination and reading scriptures. And hopefully they'll help our listeners, too, as we try to train our imaginations, right, to, to work it out like a muscle and uh, you know, beef it up a little bit. So, uh, yeah. So here's a few uh, here's a few questions, I guess. Uh, right. Just kind of we can we can discuss those a little bit, and then uh, maybe even give uh, an example or two of wh what this looks like. Kind of do it in in action here um, from a couple of scriptural examples. So, take us what do you think? How's that sound? Yeah, take us to the gym. Let's do it. All right, let's let's go. Let's work this imagination out. What's so, the first question. Uh, uh, first question. Yeah. So this is these are again. Try to keep them simple is what I, was, I was trying to do as I was thinking through this. We could get far more complex, but just uh, the first one is not really even a question. The first one is just find a way to read aloud or hear aloud the scriptures. Um, you know, whether it's sitting in the pew on Sunday morning, whether it's listening to an audiobook um, or some kind of podcast about it, or maybe you just, you know, have an old school CD or even maybe even older school like tape cassette or something of the Bible recording, whatever it is, or just reading it out loud to yourself or if you're with others in your family, reading it out loud to one another. Because you know, the scriptures are meant to be heard, and it's not bad that we read silently. That's okay. Uh, we, we don't need to get into that whole you know, debate, reading aloud versus reading silently. Both have their benefits. Uh, but there is something unique about hearing it out loud. And a lot of times you hear 
the imagery and the symbolism and your imagination, I think, tends to be maybe a little more activated when you hear things, right? Or at least it'll it'll catch your ears differently, right? Especially if you're used to reading a, a familiar passage silently to yourself and you read it out loud to yourself or you have somebody read it out loud to you, you might – your ears might be perked up and you say, oh, that sounds that sounds different. I've heard that passage a million times and I finally heard this particular thing. This, this jumped out at me and I never knew it was there before. So just – Take a moment, again, not that it always has to be this way, but take a moment and do something different. If you haven't read it out loud to yourself or had it read, try, try listening to the scriptures for, you know, for your imagination to be you know, kind of sparked or, uh, you know, jump-started <laughs> kind of thing. So it doesn't like, have to be James Earl Jones's version. No, it Bible. doesn't, although that's pretty awesome. <laughs> although I mean, it is I'm not awesome. going to lie. Yeah. I, I like hearing him re- read the Bible. Same with the, the Johnny Cash version. Oh, that's really cool, Ooh, too. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. Yeah, that would yeah, be awesome, I, I, I found it on YouTube a while back. So, yeah, those there's a good place for those, right? Yeah. Um, especially if it's got a really nice voice. <laughs> so yeah. read aloud so that you he- yeah. I, I like what you said. You hear the image. Imagery. You can you can start yep. to see it. It's a it's almost the, the eyes of faith kind of thing. Where Absolutely, you're, yeah. You're, right? you're faith comes by hearing. Paul says. Mm-hmm. And I noticed this too last night. We were doing a congregational uh, Zoom Bible study on the Book of Revelation, and we were noticing this you know, beautiful interplay between John, what he would sometimes hear you know, Jesus say, and then what he would see, and oftentimes the, what he would hear and the imagery. Not necessarily would be it wouldn't be contradictory. It just would be it would be better, right? The the imagery would be even better than he heard it once he would kind of finally see it, right? Uh, Revelation seven was a good example, right? He hears about one hundred and forty four thousand, but then he sees a multitude that no one can number. Uh, that's kind of a good oh, example of that, yeah. right? Uh, so there's this beautiful interplay there in in Revelation between hearing and hearing and seeing. And now obviously we're we're seeing when we read the scriptures, we're seeing quite a bit differently than John did, right? We're not <laughs> divinely inspired receiving the revelation from heaven, but right, we, we are given a God-given gift of the imagination to see in a way that God is revealing himself in scripture, just like he calls us to do with our right, our reason and, and all our senses, the catechism talks about. So that's kind of the first point, really, again, not really a question so much as a, a suggestion. Right? Uh, try reading or hearing out loud and see if that hits your ears or maybe awakens your imagination differently than reading silently. Or if you always hear it out loud, try reading silently and see if that works vice versa, right? You just never know. Yeah, using different different parts of your of your yep. being exactly. to engage the yep. word. Okay. Yeah, you know, educators talk about different ways of learning, right? And that's that's just another way of hitting us hitting our brains in different ways right? with the same message. You know, think about it. I had said take us to the gym, and uh, I, I would like gym <laughs> references, even though I don't go to the gym nearly as much as I should. Um, the idea that you, know, you can plateau when you're working yeah. on you know, physical fitness. You can get to a point where you're, you've done that move so much that unless you bump mm-hmm. up more weight or yeah. unless you do a different move, you're not yeah. going to see much more gain. So yep. what I'm hearing in, in my as I'm using my imagination is mm-hmm. that by – Mixing it up a little bit. If I've only, if I'm, I'm, I'm most of the time just use my eyes to read. Right. Then right. by engaging my tongue and my ears, if, if, if I'm the one reading it out loud, mm-hmm. then I'm engaging the word in a new way, which is going to help yep. me break through that plateau. Or yep. and it's the same word, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Great. Exactly. I love it. I can, uh, I yeah. Can one other one other quick that. kind of I guess addendum to that, or sort of a, a an attachment to that would be um, it, some considered finding a way, a good way to add in a visual element, right? Of this, um, oftentimes in our Bible study, I will pull off images from. Uh, there's this wonderful little website, fulloveyes.com. I think the guy's name is Christopher Powers. And I, I think you've, uh, I'm sure you've heard of him. And uh, so he does he does wonderful exegetical illustrations. Right? He illustrates scriptures with uh, with an amazing artistic talent, and does a really job, really good job of faithfully capturing what's going on in that in particular scriptures. So you know, finding a good a good piece of artwork to go along with you know, like last week we had the baptism of Jesus at our church and uh, you know we, we had a I think we had a bulletin cover or a, a picture that showed up on our church Facebook page or something and it was a it was an icon of the baptism of Jesus and that, again let those other ways of communicating um, kind of come alongside your reading and hearing of the scriptures uh, and I think they'll help and they'll be an aid for us right? excellent yeah okay. absolutely and that was fullrise.com uh, for the listener, right? Yeah, yeah. Great, great little website, wonderful free resources. 
Yeah. So when it comes to questions, then, you know, okay, once you're listening and hearing and you know, whatever that mode that is taking there, right, it, sometimes just asking a simple question of, all right, what genre is this, right? When we talk about genre, we're talking about, you know, what kind of, what kind of style writing is it? What is, you know, is it, uh, is it narrative history uh, like we maybe have in much of the first five books of, um, you know, of the, of the Old Testament, right, in the Torah, uh, the books of Moses, or in the Gospels, right? You've got narrative history and other things like that. Okay, or is it like the Psalms, right? Is it more poetry, or is it, um, you know, Ecclesiastes or Proverbs? Uh, is it more wisdom literature? Is it more prophetic, like Isaiah or Jeremiah? Is it an epistle, you know, Paul and so forth? Is it apocalyptic, and you know, ha that has its own unique genre, like Revelation and some parts of Jesus' end times teaching? You know, is it a parable of Jesus? Right. So, just looking around, you know, part of this goes back to that age-old. Lutheran interpretive tool called context. Right? Just look at the context around you and see what see what the writing is doing. See what God is communicating through that particular genre. Right? Because each genre has its unique you know, ways of you know, ways of being read. As far as uh, you know, you're going to read an epistle different than you are a historical narrative. Right? And so, just knowing that genre is there can be a helpful way of. Oh, okay, this is right, this is the way the story is being told in you know Mark. Now, even compared to John's gospel, right? So uh, even within the gospels, they use different different ways of writing. I and mean, it's all the same writer. And we don't have to get into crazy stuff like they're different people and all that. No, no. Right? Every author is capable of different things, right? You, you, your your letter to your wife might be a lot different, right? Than your uh, you know your Sunday sermon to uh, if you're a yeah. pastor to your congregation. At least it ought to be, because uh, your <laughs> wife might be a little upset by a sermon, <laughs> right? So you know, again, the gospel writers, the New Testament writers, Paul and so forth. They're using different ways of writing and different ways of communicating. So sometimes just asking yourself, all right, what is it? What is it saying? That can go a long way too. Right? Uh, and then as you're reading, as you're looking through those uh, those wonderful you know sections of context, verses, and then you kind of you know, like a puddle. You know when you throw a rock into a puddle, and it just ripples out. Right? You look at the verse. You look at the verses around it. You look at the chapter. Right? And you look at the whole chapter. And you kind of scan things around there. It, just be mindful, and, and as you're listening to, right, be aware of right, what kind of uh, what kind of metaphors are being used, what kind of symbols are being used. If there's symbolism there, what kind of images are there, right? Uh, what uh, well, a good example, right, is uh, you know, is Jesus and John in the Gospel of John. You know, we just got done with the baptism of Jesus, and in John's Gospel, right, John the Baptist talks to Jesus and calls him, right, he, he's calling him the Lamb of God. Well, that's a big image. I mean, that's a big, it, it's a symbol, but yet at the same time, it's also reality because Jesus it doesn't just represent a lamb, right? He is the lamb. He's the perfect lamb. He's, he's the lamb that all the other lambs point to, right? So he's the sort of the archetypical lamb. Mm -hmm. right? uh, all the other lambs point to him and flow out of him especially in the Old Testament, because Christ is now the perfect sacrifice, right? So it's not an accident that John calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet, at the same time, if all that we do is say, oh, yeah, that's nice, right? That's pretty. <laughs> Jesus is a cuddly little lamb. No, that's not what it means, right? Jesus is the sacrifice, right? Jesus is the lamb. And how is he going to save us from our sins? Well, he's going to be like those lambs in the Old Testament. He is going to go uh, to the slaughter uh, for us. Right? He's going to go to the cross for us. He's going to bring about a new great Passover for us. Right? So looking at the symbolism, looking at the language, looking at the metaphors, even just sometimes the titles of our Lord himself that he chooses and gives to about gives to others about himself or that others refer to him as can be a way of, oh, you know, that's what's going on here, right? When he is called the high priest in Hebrews, right? well, why is he called the high priest? It's more than just a name or a title. It, it describes who he is and what he's come to do, right? So our imagination is being, is, is needed there, right? We need our imagination to uh, right, to engage those help and to help interpret through. those. That should help us break through uh, getting caught up in like jargon and and our mm -hmm. own vocabulary, right? We like we hear high priest so much, and we're like, oh yes, this is a religious text. Of course, he's a high priest, right? Right? Yeah, but to the context, right? But what does that mean, right? What does yeah. it mean to be the high priest, right? And what is it? What does That's it mean brilliant. that Jesus is the priest? Right? So you know, unpacking those those words, and especially especially the familiar ones, right? Because we tend to, uh, and it's not bad that they're familiar. They're familiar for a reason, and they're good for a reason. But then we go back and look at them, right? Um, most of all, right, most importantly is what are these images, what are these symbols doing, right? How are they pointing us to Christ? Because I think time and time again, when we hear 
imagery being used, when we hear symbolism being used, when we use all these, you know, imaginative language, metaphors, similes, all this beautiful stuff, right? God's giving us this gift of language, and he's giving us the gift of imagination to use those things and to then, right, just like he points our reason and our mind is captive to Christ, right? Martin Luther is famous for saying, our imagination is captive to Christ too. And you know, he calls us to use that and uses imaginative language to do it. So you can see it, you know, you can, you can see it all over the scriptures, right? The Psalms is a big, it's a big way, right? When Jesus uh, talks about himself being the good shepherd, you, you think, oh, all right, he's talking about Psalm 23 stuff here, right? He's going to lead me beside still waters. Right? And you know, start, start unpacking what does, right? What does that mean? But use that meaning by, you know, discover that meaning, I should say, by using your imagination, right? Uh, what does it reveal about Christ and his love for us? And I think those are just, again, those are just a few questions, right? Look at the genre, look at the symbols, look at the imagery, the language, and then look at how that points you to Christ and what it reveals about his love for us. And that'll be, you know, that's a good start anyway. There's probably more, but, you know, that'll get you a good ways to unpacking your imagination uh, when you it. read the scriptures. Thank yeah. you so much, Pastor, for giving us these like, hey. really tangible, really like, uh, you know, basic i i love how you yeah. said simple uh you know keep it si- simple stupid i knew you know you knew you were coming to go with me so you wanted to keep it simple i appreciate that <laughs> no, I, 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 pastors always preach themselves first right so, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thank you so much for yeah. that we'll we'll come back and now that we have these I, you know i wrote these down as you were teaching us so that we can revisit them as we you know as you continue to teach us about the imagination and how we can use it uh, i'm going to start thinking it through with these four uh, well, these three questions and that statement, you know, figuring out how to how to actually do it. And uh, it's going to be fun. Thanks a lot, Sam. I appreciate it. Awesome. You're and welcome. We will, uh, we will talk to you next time. Sounds good. All right. Don't go away. We will be right back. You're listening to Cross Defense. Looking for an in-depth Bible class? Dig to the scriptures with the good and faithful servants of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. Every Sunday morning at 9.30, tune into KFUL Radio and listen as this study works through the text and real-life application for believers. You can also access the entire backlog of classes at KFUO.org. Increase in your knowledge of the faith during Bible class every Sunday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Just like that, we're back into Cross Defense. Thanks for sticking around, not taking off on me. I really appreciate that you're here for the show. I appreciate that Pastor Schulteis out in Milton, Washington, was willing to come on the show in the first segment. We could front load his content, learning about the imagination, learning how to use the imagination, how to exercise it and sharpen it. Uh, We could do all that in the beginning of the show so that we could put segments two and three back to back because we're going to talk about the same topic. We're going to need at least these two segments to get through it if not even more time, we're already going to condense the material and just give you an overview for the show. We're going to ask the question, is the New Testament trustworthy? That's the question for the remainder of the show. And you might, be fi- you might find it surprising to find out that the answer to that question of whether or not the New Testament is trustworthy really has nothing to do with theology. We don't run to the Bible to find out if the Bible is trustworthy. Not so much. Kind of, sort of, but not really. You'll get what I'm saying here in just a minute. Getting to the answer of whether or not the New Testament is trustworthy is dependent upon historical method, which is the method that everyone, no matter who they are, has to use when analyzing historical data. Christians don't find the Bible to be trustworthy because they're Christians, because of their theology. You get me? No. The the trustworthiness of the Bible is discernible on its own. You can be an atheist, vehemently opposed to Christianity. You can be an agnostic who just doesn't care that much. You can be a Muslim, a Hindu, a Mormon. You can be a Christian, too. Whoever you are, you can be that. And if you treat the New Testament like you would any other historical document, with the same 
care, and with the same, according to the same rules, you will discover that according to the historical method, the New Testament is not only a trustworthy document, but in comparison to other ancient documents, other documents without a qualifier, just other documents, it is the most trustworthy of documents. We'll give you a few examples today as we go through and uh, try to show this in action. Okay, so let's break down this historical method. At least, well, let's at least get into the historical method as we have time. Let's answer the question of the New Testament validity and really get under the hood of whether or not we can get a reliable look at Jesus, at Jesus and what he claimed in the New Testament, who he claimed to be, that he is our Lord and our Savior. Last week, we studied at the feet of John Warwick Montgomery. This week, we're going to do the same. He offers a succinct little booklet, an outline of what we're talking about in History and Christianity from 1971. As he puts it, we shall go directly to the documents themselves and subject them, the New Testament documents, to the tests of reliability employed in general historiography, that's a tongue twister, historiography and literary criticism. So we're actually going to, I want you to hear this right, we're not going to, we're not going to treat the, the Bible with sort of a, any sort of lack of reverence. In fact, we're going to treat it with the same reverence we would treat other ancient documents because the inclination by the critics is to not give the Bible its due reverence, at least the reverence of being ancient texts that deserve to be studied and deserve to be analyzed according to the same rules as other ancient texts. Now, once we get into them, the Christian, obviously because he is learning from them, understands that the Bible deserves even more reverence as the Word of God. But just for the sake of this understanding, we we make sure we're giving it the reverence, at least the reverence that we give all ancient texts as we study them honestly and without bias or presupposition. It's what we already said. Christians aren't naive fools blindly assuming the inspiration of Scripture. We don't start with infallibility, the infallibility of the Bible. The New Testament, like the Old, is both inspired and infallible. Yes, it is. But that's not assumed from the beginning. Rather, it's understood from the study of the historical document once it's discovered and accepted to be trustworthy. Yeah? Okay, so let's get into this method and start to to really discern whether or not the New Testament Jesus and his claims are trustworthy. So the first test we want to employ is the bibliographical test. With this test, we analyze the textual tradition of a document, how that document reached us, has been given to us, how we're able to read it. So for the New Testament, we're asking the question, can we reconstruct the document well enough to see what Jesus actually claimed, right? So Jesus made claims. Can we actually reconstruct exactly what Jesus said, parse through legends and myths and fabrications and get to what he actually said? Can we reconstruct that with any sort of validity? The answer is a resounding yes. Without any equivocation, yes, Montgomery quotes a scholar on this topic, Sir Frederick Kenyon, and this is what Kenyon says. In no other case is the interval of time between the composition of the book and the date of the earliest extant manuscripts, that's currently still existing manuscripts, so short as in that of the New Testament. Read that again, just in case you're picking up bits and pieces. In no other case is the interval of time between the composition of the book, when it was written, (laughs) 
and the date of the earliest still in existence manuscript. So short as in that of the New Testament. The books of the New Testament were written in the latter part of the first century. The earliest extant manuscripts are of the fourth century, say from 250 to 300 years later, he says. This is what he says. Now hold on to that because we're actually going to minimize that gap even further. But this is what he starts off by saying. This may sound like a considerable interval, Kenyon says, but it's nothing compared to that which parts most of the great classical authors from their earliest manuscripts. We believe that we have in all essentials an accurate text of seven extant plays of Sophocles. Yet the earliest substantial manuscript upon which it is based was written more than 1,400 years after the poet's death. So let me break this down. Kenyon is saying that when he's writing here about Sophocles, there's 1,400 years between when Sophocles wrote his poems and the manuscripts that we actually still have today, that we have in our possession. And we can verify, we're, we're confident to say, that even though there's a 1,400-year gap, that Sophocles wrote them, and they are accurate to what Sophocles said. And he's saying that the New Testament books were written in the first century, and the earliest manuscripts that we have of them are of the fourth century. Now, he's going to actually reduce that even more in just a second, but still, just right there, 300 years later or 1,400 years later, we have no problem accepting Sophocles' manuscripts to being as being Sophocles's, but we have a problem with the New Testament? No, that doesn't jive. Okay, so Kenyon offers more examples, but here's the point. We're willing to accept the manuscripts of Sophocles' poems as valid reproductions of the originals, as trustworthy to what the poet Sophocles wrote even though they are 1,400 years removed from the autographs, from his actual writings. And this is standard across the Western world. This is the normal time gap between ancient artifacts and the time of their composure. But when we look at the New Testament, immediately, we discover that the time gap isn't 1,400 years but easily 250 to 300 years, and actually a lot shorter than that. Since the time that Kenyon originally wrote what I just read to you, that it was 250 to 300 year gap, from that original time, more papyri have been uncovered, more archaeological finds have been revealed, and these discoveries date back not to the 4th century, but to the 1st century. Presented with this information, speaking as an honest scholar, Kenyon said, the interval then between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Basically, given the evidence that the manuscripts are authentic are authentic to the originals, sorry, getting a little tongue-tied there, and in light of the fact that we have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts or portions of manuscripts from antiquity to compare and contrast with a library of quotes from early Christian writers— citing the New Testament, we can conclude, as Montgomery does, that to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity, for no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. So if you want to throw out the New Testament based on bibliographical evidence, you have to throw out all of classical literature, classical antiquity. You got to get rid of it. It will be gone. You will not be able to trust anything coming to us from classical antiquity. In other words, we know the textual tra tradition by which we have received the New Testament. It is clear and beyond bulletproof. 
According to the bibliographical test, the New Testament is a trustworthy document. But there are more tests to run, such as the internal evidence test and the external evidence test. We will get to them right after this break. Don't go away. You're listening to Cross Defense. I am your host, the Reverend Tyrell Bramwell, and we're just getting started with the historical method. What happens when your favorite radio station, KFUO, and your favorite publisher, Concordia Publishing House, join forces? Something wonderful. The new KFUO Radio Store. You don't need to wait for share to pick up cool swag for KFUO Radio and Lutheran Ladies Lounge. You can visit our store at KFUO.org. Your purchase helps to support our gospel proclamation and lets you showcase your love for KFUO Radio. Check out our store by going to KFUO.org slash store. And we're back. This is Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Tyrell Bramwell, admission counselor at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and the host of this show here on KFUO.org. It is a pleasure to be with you, to be looking at the historical method and asking the question, is the New Testament trustworthy? And offering the answer, yes, a thousand times, yes, it is. The bibliographical test that we just looked at in the first segment shows that the gap between the original composition, the autographs, the original writings, and the extant documents that we have, the manuscripts that are in our possession today, it is a very short gap. It is, in fact, negligible. This is just scratching the surface, kind of giving you an example of how the bibliographical test works. We're going to do the same right now with the internal evidence test and then the external evidence test. So in the internal evidence test, we listen to the claims of the document itself, the document under question the one we're looking at, the New Testament in this case. What does it say about itself? The text is given the chance to speak before we decide what it's saying. The authors themselves get to say what they're saying. (laughs) Funny thing, we actually let the person writing say what he wants to say, and we hear it without any presupposition giving the author, the benefit of the doubt. Ha! Kind of funny, right? It isn't assumed to be fraudulent based on a critic's views, but only if it contradicts itself and expresses a known inaccuracy, a falsehood. Okay? So, like I said at the beginning of the second segment, this is how we treat all historical documents. We give them the benefit of the doubt. This is very Aristotelian, if you will. Aristotle says this. We should give the document the benefit of the doubt before we jump to a conclusion that it's false. We don't want to impose our ideas onto the text. We want to investigate the text. We don't want to be biased. We want to be objective and let the text tell us what it wants to tell us. If it contradicts itself, then we have a flag, then there's something we can go with. If it expresses an inaccuracy that is known to be inaccurate, well, then we have something we can go with. But the internal evidence test starts with not assuming, but giving the benefit of the doubt in the investigation and letting the text speak for itself. So when the Pauline epistles say that they're written by the Apostle Paul, This is what we go with, unless we have reason not to. The New Testament as a whole claims over and over and over again to be the eyewitness testimony or testimony derived from reliable sources. So the student of the document starts there. That's what the New Testament says of itself with the claims it's making, internal evidence. Now, nothing inside the New Testament Nothing causes reason not to treat it as it claims to be. It claims to be the eyewitness testimony of Jesus' apostles, and it never, never 
presents a reason for us to think otherwise. According to internal evidence, the New Testament is a trustworthy document. Next is the external evidence test. This is where we ask whether other historical materials agree or disagree with what our historic document under question says. So first we let the, the document speak for itself, and then we compare it to what other documents say about it. What we find when we compare the New Testament with other documents, archaeological findings, etc., external evidence, is that its primary claims are not denied, but actually confirmed. The New Testament, the, the Old Testament too, really, didn't emerge out of a historical vacuum. It wasn't written in some corner of the world, untouched by the other cultures and other peoples. Extra-biblical material does and will speak to the claims of Scripture. And this could be applied to any, any religious text. We're, we're thinking about the New Testament today, but you can apply this to the Book of Mormon. Can you look at extra-Mormon material, material that is not within the Book of Mormon, and confirm what the Book of Mormon says about itself? Or does it contradict what the Book of Mormon says? Right? This, this is about, you can do this with the, the Koran. You can do this with any religious text. In fact, we probably should. You probably should. As you weigh out all the different religions out there, coming to terms with what they teach and whether or not they are trustworthy, you can look at what they say of themselves and you can look at what other texts say about them. And not even texts, but geography, archaeology, all the different evidences that we have, does it support or does it reject what that religious text is saying of itself? Okay, so I think you get the idea. Okay, Montgomery cites a great example of this. Papias, the bishop of Hierapolis, writing in A.D. 130, says this, John the Elder used to say, Mark, having been the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately all that Peter mentioned, whether sayings or doings of Christ, not, however, in order. Now, this is what a writer says in A.D. 130 about what John, the apostle, the evangelist, said about Mark, right? So now we have all these points of contact to verify whether what Scripture says is accurate. This is an external historic document that makes a claim about the New Testament, which then can be used to corroborate or discredit the claims of the Bible. Bishop Papias is obviously a Christian. He's a bishop who heard what John had to say about Mark. But the external evidence test isn't limited to historic documents that are kind to Christianity, to friendly documents. There are other writings by enemies of the church, the foes of the church, Roman and Jewish sources, other sources as well, that also corroborate the New Testament's claims. And one of my favorite, favorite examples of this is from the Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus lived from 37 AD to around 100 AD, and he wrote with the support of Roman patronage. So he's Jewish with Roman support. In fact, Josephus took the last name of his patrons, Flavius, I believe. Josephus Flavius. If I'm saying that wrong, you could correct me, but I think that's right. In his book, Antiquities of the Jews, he records this amazing statement. Here it is. Now, there was about this time Jesus... A wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, 
among the Jews, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. This historical document was written by a pro-Roman Jew in the days when the Christian church was still in its infancy. He was born in AD 37 and lived to 100, 100 AD, I should say, somewhere around there, not to the age 100, but to the year 100. That's roughly the same era. It overlaps. He's kind of a contemporary with John, the evangelist, right? Their lives are going to overlap. He's, he's overlapping with Christians who were alive when Jesus was crucified. I mean, Josephus was born 37. Jesus was crucified, what, 33? You guys making the connection? This guy was right there in the same era. And not being a Christian, being a historian, he records that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate and raised on the third day and that his followers did not forsake him, but actually many, many, many more were drawn to him and they're not extinct to this day as we know Christianity went on to spread over the entire earth. It's still here today. This historical document was written by a pro-Roman Jew. Not a, not a pro-Christian and yet, his words corroborate what the New Testament says. Ha! History. History. It's great. See, we're not talking theology necessarily. We're not starting from a theological point. We're starting from a historical point. We're treating the New Testament, and we can do the same with the Old Testament. We're treating the text as a historical document as it deserves to be treated, not irreverently, but actually lifting it up as opposed to the way many anti-Christian critics treat it today, putting it down immediately so that their presuppositions can actually have the day. But that's not the way you do things. That's not how you do things according to the historical method. According to the external evidence test, the New Testament is a trustworthy document. External evidence, other documents, support the claims that the internal evidence test confirmed, the claims that the the document makes of itself. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. Isn't that awesome? Historical method. The bibliographical test, the internal evidence test, the external evidence test, these are tools that we can apply to the New Testament, to the Old Testament as well, before we even get to the point of theology, to belief. And we can, we can answer the question, is what I'm reading trustworthy? It may seem fantastic, and that really is why many critics reject it, because of the miracles. And that's kind of what Montgomery's getting at with the whole point of his little booklet, is that there are critics, educated, academics, scholarly-type critics who reject the Bible because of the miracles within it, because it's fantastic, because it's hard to believe that someone could get up from the dead, that someone could be born of a virgin. It's hard to believe all these fantastic wonders that the Lord did. And so they reject it out of hand immediately before they give it its due diligence, before they treat it like the historical document that it is and investigate it honestly, without bias, but objectively, letting the text speak for itself, analyzing the history of how we received the text that we're now analyzing, and then also letting the culture and the history that the text emerged from and within speak to it as well. External evidence. Is the New Testament trustworthy? According to the same historical method that we use to validate every other historical document, the answer is a resounding, unequivocal yes. Yes. 
Today, we introduced those three tests. There are other ways we can get at this as well. I hope this piqued your interest in a little bit of apologetics. According to each of these tests, you, my friends, have every reason to be comforted by the cross of Christ, to believe in the Jesus of the New Testament, what the apostles handed down to us. According to each of them, you have every reason to believe and be a Christian, to be baptized, to receive the Lord's Supper, to believe it is actually Christ's body and blood, that your baptism is a new birth, your new birth into Christ, to believe that you will live forever, forever in paradise, the new heavens and the new earth with Christ to believe all the miraculous signs that Jesus did, to believe in the empty tomb, to believe that you will have an empty tomb, that you will get up from the grave. You have every reason to believe these teachings of Scripture, to be trustworthy, not from a place of theological insight first, but from a place of historical observation, sense, reason, God gave us our minds, our ability to think for this very reason. You do not have to believe blindly, but apply your logic. Treat the text honestly, without presupposition or agenda. And let it tell you if it's trustworthy. And it will. It does. It did. The issue is not with the New Testament Someone doesn't believe the New Testament to be trustworthy and therefore believe what it says inside to be accurate. The issue is with the critic. And the issue is not founded or rational. It's misplaced. All right, well, that's it for today. The cross, my friends, is your defense. Until next week, may the trustworthiness of Christ bring you peace and security. Christ be with you. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.